Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two Kwan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. Then we've got Laura, the CEO of the show. And then you've got myself, I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. Uh, we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. It's been for once a relatively calm week in crypto. I actually, for the first time, I learned that my mom watches the show. And uh, she, apparently when she misses me, she turns on the show because she wants to, she wants to see me and like she likes my camera. And uh, she told me, the feedback that she gave me on the show is that like, yeah, I see this, um, who's, the, who's the crazy guy with the crazy hair? And I'm like, oh, you mean Tarun? And she's like, yeah, yeah. Tell Tarun to cut his hair. <laughs> so, <laughs> my, my mom wants you to cut your hair, Tarun, I just, just to relay that to you. You know, don't worry. My mother tells me that all the time, too. So. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't think she watch I don't think she watches this though, but yeah. <laughs> okay. I it does make me very nervous now to imagine my mom watching the show, but um I I'm I'm going to try to push it out of my mind. I mean, it's short on the one side, so you could just like record from, you know, one angle of your face. Hello. <laughs> yes, yes. Welcome to And then, and then the mothers the mothers are you now suddenly appeased. look much more backable. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I love it that they didn't object to the color. It's only the length. <laughs> she did mention something about the color, but I thought I wouldn't bring that up because I feel like that was a little... <laughs> she, 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 she has other preconceived notions about people with colored hair. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to mention that one, but the long hair, she, she, she pressed on that a couple of times. So, but she otherwise, she otherwise uh, said that you talk a lot. That was the other thing that she mentioned. <laughs> To be clear, she doesn't, she doesn't know anything about crypto, doesn't follow any of the space. She's just, she's just here to like listen, just feel the vibes. Anyway, I like the tone right. we're setting for this show. It's going to be the pick on Tarun uh, episode, <laughs> which, which, I'm, which I'm good at. And I, I set the tone already in our little pregame um, conversation. But anyway. Well, okay, so let's, let's, let's break it down it a bit with uh, some of the news <laughs> that's taken place this last week. So one of the interesting pieces of news this week was around Arbitrum. So... Arbitrum, of course, launched their token, the ARB token. A uh, lot of fanfare around the airdrop, which took place you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, and then came the very first governance proposal on the Arbitrum forum, uh, which is known as AIP-1. And AIP-1, uh, the way it was proposed is that it was supposed to be spending 750 million ARB tokens, about a billion dollars worth of ARB tokens, uh, you know, roughly 10% of the total supply. It's going to be sent to the Arbitrum Foundation to give them capital to invest into initiatives with the Arbitrum that are going to be built on top of Arbitrum. Uh, and ARP holders wouldn't really get a say. It would give the Arbitrum Foundation total 
ability to do what they want with the 1 billion because, you know, they got to compete. They got to compete with Polygon. They got to compete with Solana, whatever, right? That, that's kind of the general idea. So now the Arbitrum holders looked at this, this proposal and they were like, wow, that's a lot of ARB without any oversight. I don't really like that. Uh, and so they started voting against it. And then the Arbitrum Foundation was like, oh shit, hold on guys. This is actually not meant to be a proposal in the traditional sense. This is meant to be a ratification because we kind of already did it. And so this caused the governance holders to freak out and everyone on Twitter to get mad and say, oh my God, governance is a sham. Arbitrum token doesn't do anything. Uh, because uh, it turned out that a lot of these tokens, uh, 50 million of the 750 million ARB tokens was already allocated to a market maker, uh, supposedly Wintermute. And then 10 million was already sold into fiat to cover operating costs for the foundation. And so the foundation you know, issued this kind of flat-footed response saying like, well, no, you know, look, at just as a matter of practicality, we, we have to have tokens in order to set up a foundation and to engage contractors and to do this stuff. Like, you know, DAOs don't show up for free and foundations are money. And so like, look, this is, I'm sorry, we kind of messed this up. We should have communicated this as we already did it as opposed to here's what we would like to do. Um, but a lot of people got bad because obviously this was not communicated well. Um, so Arbitrum has since then uh, backed up and said, okay, guys, we hear you. The entire internet is now mad at us. Um, we are going to re you know, re redo this whole operation. We're going to break this AIP into pieces and we're going to try to repass individual pieces and get more feedback from the, from the DAO. But this is, this is raised a big conversation about how much is governance really governance and how much of this is kind of a show, especially in the early days of a DAO when obviously there's you know, a, a lot of insiders who are basically controlling the, the outcome of these votes. So what were you guys take seeing the drama unfolding over the weekend? I mean, I just didn't even know why they had tried to do the ratification. I was like, if you already did it, then like, like why even go through this ceremonial thing? It doesn't even make any sense. You should just be like, by the way, here's how it was all set up, you know, and not like do this ratification post, you know, after the fact, like it doesn't even make any sense. It's just like, they stirred up the pot for no reason. They'd already done it. There was nothing anybody could do about it. So why go through the motions of making it seem like people are approving something? I was just like, you guys caused yourself this problem over like nothing. And maybe you guys know more about DAO governance than I do, but I was a little bit like, why? You could have just been like, here's what's been done. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I mean, there always is like a little bit of this LARP in the beginning. I think people think of it a little bit kind of like, uh, you know, the, the comps always get drawn to like um, WordPress and Automatic or like, you know, uh, Red Hat and Fedora where it's like, um, okay, there is the open source thing that people are contributing to. And then there's this separate entity that like the DAO pays to do the thing. And, and in reality, it's it's kind of a LARP because they're they're kind of very tightly you know, connect, connected, at least in the early days. And so it's like, yeah, sure, it wasn't the best show, but like, you know, what's the alternative? No, like no one's going to develop Arbitrum and, and like, you know, some so they're going to wait for some third party to show up and generate like a consulting proposal. And so, you know, obviously everyone kind of wants the outcome. I said something to a founder recently, which apparently really resonated, which was like early stage startups, they're a little bit like China, where it's like, yeah, you have the power and the control, but like you need to let the people believe that they have some of the power and some of the control to sort of keep this this process going. And uh, apparently that resonated with them. But I, I think of that a little bit like this, like we kind of know the outcome, but people kind of need to be brought into the process anyway. I'm guessing also they thought that this thing would just pass uncontroversially, right? My, my, my guess is that they were like, you know what? It'll look better for us if the if the community just like rubber stamps this thing, as opposed to if we 
Like when we come out with our token economics, we're like, yeah, there's 50% of the community, but 10% of that 50% of the community is also ours. And we're going to like figure out what to do with it. Uh, and we're not going to have any oversight over it. That like kind of looks bad. And they were like, I bet we could just get the early people to say yes to whatever we asked for in the first proposal. That, that's my, that's my first guess looking at this is that they did not think this would be controversial. And then they, you, you saw them like trying to justify it. They were like, well, if you compare this to like AVAX and compare this to Polygon, like actually we have less of the, the percentage of the tokens that just goes to the foundation that just goes and makes grants and stuff. So like, why are you arguing with us? Like stop arguing with us. <laughs> was kind of the vibe from the responses in the governance forum. So I, I think this was not, I think they like kind of backpedal my guess, total speculation. My guess is that they backpedaled at the end when they realized that there was just a revolt from the token holders. And they were like, oh, no, 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 this was meant to be a ratification. Like that, that was the intention from the beginning, where I guess in the beginning, they probably assumed it would just get rubber stamped and nobody would care and the thing would just pass very easily. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, yeah, the, the, the comparisons to other networks is pretty fair. I also just think that the one question I have is like, what lawyer kind of like said that this was like a good thing to do because like it does feel like a little bit like there's some law firm unclear if it's a u.s one or cayman one or something who was like hey guys you know because there's a lot of regulatory pressure you know it would be great if it looked like a dow voted on the foundation because of a, a of the like cases that exist right now like the uki dow case and stuff like that so like why don't you just like toss in a vote but like make sure it get make sure it passes uh and, and like it, there's somehow some of that it the way the re- initial response read like it was drafted by a lawyer and the later response read by it was drafted by like a crypto person sort of set suggested that like somehow there was like a lawyer running this and it was not like and 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 you know you know i got to say like i i really love the arbitrum team because they're like really good engineers there's like a ton of people who are really focused on engineering I'm not sure if I, I, I know much about anyone who does sort of community stuff there. So it can, it, I, I don't actually know who, who runs this, but like the, the response just felt like it was written by a lawyer to me. Like, and it, it felt like some legal counsel was like, hey, you just should just do this. And it, you know, of course, sort of ended up not working out as well. And yeah, I, I just, I, one of the most uncomfortable conversations has to be the Arbitrum team talking to whatever legal counsel suggested this. <laughs> That would be what I like. I would not want to be in that room. Well, I mean, I'm still reeling a little bit from this analogy to China, because like if blockchains are supposed to create these little mini democracies, but really it's all like these sham democracies where instead it's like actually top down control, like that's really problematic. Like the fact that that is what resonated with that person and that that was the analogy you came up with. I'm a little bit like. What are you guys all building here? Like that that's not what people To be fair, this this was a this was a centralized company that happens to operate in crypto. It's not it's not a, a DAO or not a protocol or something like that. But I mean, I think it's it's kind of like yeah, I mean I mean in in the early days things start out kind of centralized. You need someone to start pushing the boulder and then things kind of slowly decentralize over time. I mean, I think Maker is actually kind of a pretty good example in terms of like um, you know, there's you see political infighting which is a testament to like the fact that no one is actually, you know, pulling the strings. And also, frankly, there's this other component here, which is just like these big lump sum payments and sort of the lack of oversight around budgeting. Maker actually does an incredible job with budgeting. Like you can basically see all the different line items broken out for all the different core units. And like 
most DAOs don't do that. They, they operate like this, where it's like, you know, pay us $100 million and we'll like develop the protocol and, uh, you know, trust us, it's going to be spent well. I, I just want to give like sort of a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to the Arbitrum team in some ways, because like, I do feel like they did actually add in some other safeguards, like the fact that you can vote off the off-chain directors, like the DAO basically effectively controls the multi-sig. That was pretty interesting. Like a lot of other L2 foundations didn't do this. I think the difference is in a bull market when a lot of these other L2s launched, the knives weren't handily readily available, uh, let's say. And people just didn't notice that people were doing much more egregious things. And I think that the the kind of like timing plus the really bad uh, PR stuff, which looked like it was written by a lawyer, just like those two things compounded into something that looked horrible. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree that like, I think like they actually made some very interesting steps towards decentralization and their proposal that are all going to get overlooked because of like <laughs> sort of some of the other improprietous stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would describe it a little bit differently, which is that, you know, Arbitrum, you know, Arbitrum is a layer two. And that means, you know, of course they have a centralized uh, coordinator that basically runs all the blocks. Like they, you know, they run the server that runs the layer two. So you know, the sense in which like this thing can be decentralized is actually a, it'll take a while before this thing is actually governing anything that's plausibly decentralized just from the, from the architecture of the thing. Uh, and that's true for all the layer twos at the moment. That said, like they've basically been completely centralized up until the point where they launched a token. And now all of a sudden there's like this changeover very suddenly where they have to move from being totally centralized to now being plausibly decentralized, or at least like you know, uh, deferring to DAO governance. And that's a very sudden change in the way an organization runs, in a way decisions are made, in a way that people think about their own roles and who they're responsive to. Like, it is a very sudden and weird thing that normal organizations never do. This is, this is purely like a weird blockchain land, you know, uh, you know, bizarro world thing that we're doing. This idea that like, hey guys, why didn't you set up all these decisions to be responsive to the DAO, which just existed 10 minutes ago, and like all these random forum posters are now your boss. Like that's weird. It's a weird thing to like change your mindset into. And Arbitrum very clearly, like although they've built a great community, they were never subservient to their community in a way that they now have to be now that they have a token. So they've never had to deal with like the mob. And now they're learning, they're getting a crash course in like what happens when the mob shows up and the mob is mad. And the mob, like they, they have your tokens now and they control you and they're very upset. And- you know, you could see that, like, even the way the original post was written, as you were saying, Tarun, it was written by this group. I can't remember what it was called. It was, like, some consulting firm that they they, they later admitted. Like, they were like, who is this person who wrote the initial proposal? Because it's not, like, somebody of the Arbitrum Core team. And they were like, yeah, it's this, like, consulting firm that we hired to, like, handle governance matters for us. And it was, like, bad look. You have to understand, there's, like, the you know, one of the ways I would delineate the difference between Arbitrum and Optimism and this is not like a, a purely like a very tight uh, dividing line, but like the Arbitrum team is like a bunch of engineers and academics, and and they're 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 really built around like focusing on the engineering side, and I think they kind of like let a, left all the other stuff kind of like untouched, especially community wise, on for a long time, right? Like relative to say optimism, which arguably has like less of the engineering. And like kind of technical adroitness in some ways, 
but they did start with much more of a focus on the community and like community management from the beginning. And they weren't kind of like, hey, we'll bolt it on at the end. And this kind of is a, illustrates that philosophical difference between the two of them in a lot of ways. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. And you can see that in that optimism has always been talking about the community and public goods and how to make all this stuff beneficial for everybody, even when like optimism wasn't even working. They were spending an enormous amount of energy explaining how all this was good for everyone and the mob should be very happy. And Arbitrum is kind of the opposite. It was like, look, we built you a great layer two. What more do you want? Like, why are you yelling at us? Like, give us, give us tokens so we can go make it more valuable. So I think it does, uh, I mean, look, after this, like I guarantee you everybody at Arbitrum is shell-shocked and they are now never going to make this mistake again and everyone is going to get like some, some form of like training in like never, ever say anything, never, ever dismiss token holders ever because like we can't let this ever happen again but it's a it's a it's an expensive and painful lesson are there any dow comms consultants yet you know it's like you, when there's pr crises you can hire like a you know, pr <laughs> consultant is anyone doing specializing in dows i feel like there would be a good market you you know i think um uh the the meme i would make about this is 2020 was the year that everyone could be an investor 2023 is the year everyone can work in investor relations which is like basically what the like, hey, you're liable to the token holders. is. Yeah, I feel like this has actually come up on the show before where we talked about the importance of community managers. And like, I also have personal experience running like a big group and um, online. And yeah, when things get out of control, it is bad. So like learning how to communicate, learning what to do when things go down, having like kind of like shifts basically for people to manage, you know, when things are starting to bubble up in the forum and whatnot. Like, I feel like that's all going to be super important, but yeah, I feel like in this case where it's already been done and then you give them this facade of like having control over something like people are not going to react well to that, you know? So they should have just been upfront and been like, sorry, this has been done already. Um, and we're yeah. announcing it. Yeah. I mean, you can see also that like, it wasn't a facade, it turns out because the, the token holders really did have control. They didn't have control over the 50 million that they'd already cashed out. But the rest of it, the other 700 million, yeah, they have control. <laughs> the token holders have control because they took it back and now they're going to resubmit things to governance and get people to sign off. So I think in the end, it's like, it was messy, but it is a validation that like, hey, yeah, ultimately when you have a token, the token holders are in control. Yeah, and actually in a way, maybe it's good because it like probably galvanized the token holders. And so there's probably like, certain people that are naturally filling certain roles of like, oh, you know, now we're going to be watching blah, blah, blah. blah. I, I haven't been following this, so I might be just making stuff up, but I could imagine people being like, oh, we need somebody to do, you know, X, Y, Z to watch for this or that and, you know, to come up with ideas for this or that. So you tell me, I don't know if any of you have been following it more closely, but it seems like that would naturally happen now. I think starting governance on such a sour note is going to make everybody super vigilant for the next proposal and the one after that and like the level of argumentation and every proposal is going to go way up. So these, these things do have a way of like affecting governance and making it feel more adversarial with the foundation or with like the, uh, you know, the, the team that's actually building the software. Whereas I think in places where there's just not as much pushback and like almost every proposal gets passed, there's just a sense that it's kind of like a board in management, right? There are times when the board is just like very pro the CEO and they just kind of let them do whatever they want. Cause like, look, we trust you. Um, but if that doesn't happen, it's like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And like every single question, every single decision from the, from the CEO is being fought by the board. It's just a precedent that like tends not to go away. Like it just tends to persist. 
So my guess is that that's going to happen to arbitrum governance at this point, which may be good or it may be bad. It's hard to tell. I, I mean, I think I think a lot of this also just has to do with like um, if you know if you look at sort of the governance practices of say startups from 2015 through 2021, it was like strict like loosening, right? Like people had like less and less board control. Um, people had less and less like governance rights over um, their investments. Like you, you saw sort of this loosening in standards. And I think a lot of uh, projects that launched tokens in, you know, that era, so that that would include kind of the other L2s, they sort of inherited that. And so Arbitrum is sort of in the same way that right now, every, you know, fundraising round has very strict terms, way stricter terms than, say, 2021, token holders expect sort of the same kind of reckoning. Uh, and it's sort of interesting that the stuff that happens in the like pure private market, pure equity market is, is like has bled into, into DAOs in, in some way, right? That's like, it's like sort of an unexpected thing, but I think the Arbitrum <laughs> scenario kind of il- illustrates that. Yeah, I think that, I think that's possible. That's possibly true. Okay, let's, um, let's change topics. So the other big thing that's coming up next week is the Chappella upgrade. So Chappella is a combination of two big upgrades in Ethereum, one of which is Shanghai, which people have been talking about forever. The Shanghai upgrade is the upgrade that ultimately allows stakers to unstake and withdraw their Ether and potentially sell staked Ether, which has been kind of dormant, uh, just stuck on the, on the staked side since basically when staking went live with the, with the advent of the beacon chain. So today we have about 15% of the total Ether supply staked. Uh, and so that means that within short order, all of that stake will potentially be eligible to be sold. Uh, now, different people have different expectations about what this is going to do in terms of how much Ether is going to get unstaked. Uh, it's not straightforward to be able to to model exactly who's going to unstake when and who, who, even if they do unstake, who's going to sell or not. Uh, most people are anticipating a lot of unstaking, although this unstaking is kind of uh, – th- there's multiple steps you have to go through and not everyone can unstake at once. There's a couple of cues that you have to – uh, go through in order to fully unstake. Gauntlet, uh, Tarun, you guys wrote a piece about the Shanghai upgrade, talking about what you think the effects are going to be on staking derivatives, Ethereum security. Can you summarize for us, like, wh- what are your guys' expectations of what's going to happen with the Shanghai upgrade? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the stuff that people are fighting about on Twitter re- regarding it is sort of the polemics of what we were talking, what we wrote about. The polemics being like, Everyone's going to withdraw. It's going to have no security. It's over. They're going to withdraw and sell because they've been locked up for X number of months. That's one side of the argument. The other side is everyone is hodling forever. Uh, and and if, if, if this doesn't remind you of like Bitcoin halvening events, it's, it's sort of like Bitcoin <laughs> halvening events had the same level of polemicism, right? Of like, oh, like at the halvening, everyone's going to sell right before or after. And like they'd have some weird theory, right? Like rainbow curve type theory. Yeah. So I, I think the the main thing we were we are more focused on is the fact that there's, you know, staking derivatives have a ton of concentration. Um, so staking derivatives allow you to basically give your 32 ETH, which is sort of the minimum amount to make a validator, to a validator, and then you receive a sort of IOU. And the IOU is sort of like the pooled stake that um, a bunch of validators are running the network with. And the IOU lets you sort of have some liquidity on your asset. And so these IOUs are very popular. In fact, they're you know larger in some sense than the rest of DeFi right now. They're one of the most popular assets in, in decentralized finance. 
And the reason for that is that, you know, people, when they are, you know, contributing their ETH to validate the beacon chain, um, they're locked up until this upgrade. Uh, and they've been locked up since the beacon chain started. And so, you know, it's been quite a while. And so the idea with staking Druid is, is it allows people some form of partial liquidity. Now, we've had some liquidity crises uh, around staking derivatives in the past. Um, so right after, uh, about a month after uh, Luna crashed, Three Arrows Capital had their insolvency event. And in that process, they market sold an extremely large amount of staking derivatives, causing sort of some unexpected behavior. In this upgrade, we sort of don't expect the same level of that type of stuff happening, partially because, A, there's a bunch of staking derivatives and people have started partitioning their risk somewhat into different staking derivatives. And B, the net leverage ratio is much lower. So people were using these staking derivatives and sort of treating them like ETH and then taking, you know, like 5 to 10x leverage on them. And I think the net leverage ratio, you know, prior to Luna crashing was actually quite a bit higher uh, than that, almost like 20x on-chain. And so that net leverage ratio has gone down. And so I, there's, you know, there's going to be sort of some orderly events. Like, I'm sure there's going to be people unwinding positions in, in, you know, getting ready for this. But I don't think it's going to be either of those two polemic ends where everyone sells at the same time and ETH POS is dead or, you know, like everyone's hodling forever and like, how can you not expect the rainbow curve for the price for, for Ethereum? So, uh, yeah. Tarun, if I had to ask you, what do you think is going... Do you think the net level of ETH staked is going to be higher or lower two weeks after the Shanghai upgrade? What would you guess? Um, my guess is that it will be slightly lower. So I don't think it will be higher, but I don't think it's going to be dramatically lower. I just think there's a lot of people who have liquidity needs. But but I do think that the overall staking derivatives ecosystem is expanding quite dramatically. Like there's a lot of different staking derivatives. There's also things like Eigenlayer, which will allow you to sort of restake your assets and provide them to certain networks for services on chain like Oracles or or, or or other things like that. And so there's sort of a sense in which that there's a bunch of opportunities, yield opportunities tied to staking that are sort of growing over the next few years. And I, I expect the recovery time from maybe a, a slight dip to not be not very long. Um, in some sense, to me, the only single origin organic yield on chain right now is ETH staking. And, and it, for the foreseeable future, it is really the only thing. Like the other staking products just don't have the same level of liquidity, interest, and actual you know, usage of generating fees, MEV, etc. I like the idea of calling ETH staking organic yield. I feel like there's some branding exercise around there that we can do. Well, well, like the 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 thing is in the last bull bear market, um, the now infamous GBTC trade and sort of Bitcoin basis trade were the pure organic yield. Wait, what makes yield organic? Hold on, how are you defining organic now? That that doesn't sound very organic to me. GBTC is not organic, but the Bitcoin basis trade, where like the futures and spot were all like historically always trading at some deviation, that was like okay. something that was a huge. That was like the organic yield. And part of that just had to do with like the nature of Bitcoin futures versus the nature of spot and like delivery. But that, that was sort of BitMEX was sort of built off of that in a lot of ways. I, I was going to say this reminds me so much of, of Grayscale ETH 
um, right? And that it's it's like Hotel California. You can you can check in, but you can never check out if you stake right now, which obviously makes it <clears throat> in, in some respects unattractive for a lot of investors, right? Like ETH staking as a percentage of total ETH is very low, much lower than like pretty much every other POS chain. Um, in part because you don't know when you're going to get liquidity. It's the same reason why ETH, uh, the, the grayscale ETH trust is trading at such a massive discount is because you, you're basically you know, hoping and betting that at some point it turns to par, but you have no real read on, on when you'd be able to redeem it. Adding this sort of redemption loop and you know completing this sort of ARB makes it underwritable for a lot of investors or just ETH holders who are sitting on the sidelines right now. So um, I think anything, it, just, it makes it kind of more attractive to get the organic yield. So I guess we're going to use that term now. It sounds plausible in the long run that there's going to be more ETH stakes because like you said, you know, a lot of ETH is just sitting around doing nothing. Um, and you might as well get something for it and, you know, uh, nominally secure the network. But I do agree in the short term, you know, it's, it's likely that there's going to be people who want to get out as opposed to people who immediately want to get in. So I think two-week prediction, I'd probably agree with Tarun that more ETH will be unstaked. But I would guess like two years, there will be more ETH staked than there is today. Yeah. And a lot of this is like a natural basis effect. So like think about the ETH price at the time the person staked. Think about the ETH price now and imagine you're a fund that's dollar denominated. You have to return to your investors in dollars. Well, your net return might have might actually be negative because of uh, the fact that ETH price has gone down from when you were staking, when you first started staking, like when you, you made that position. So your your basis will affect that. And like there's obviously people who have negative bases, right? Like the the, the beacon chain started at a much higher ETH price. So uh, you know, you can't imagine that all of them are just gonna stay forever you know that's never that's never been so, true yeah, they gotta do some tax loss harvesting basically is what you're, what you're saying it's it's like stuff like that like that type of stuff that's kind of like systematic stuff i think there's a ton of that that exists one thing i find so interesting about this conversation is that nobody has raised this issue about how now the new york attorney general and gary gensler keeps saying every crypto aside from bitcoin is a security but you know Letitia james also said that ether is a security and I think like back when staking started, Gary Gensler said that staking uh, products look or not product. I shouldn't say products because that sounds like from an exchange. But I just mean that coins, uh, you know, that are secured by staking are securities. He was implying all this. And I just find it fascinating that like nobody seems to be thinking about that. Like you guys are all like, yeah, there's probably going to be more staked ether in the future now that this has been implemented, um, which yeah, I don't know. It just sort of feels like the industry is sort of like, we don't care. Yeah, I mean, if you're going through an exchange or something like that, I, I think as we sort of saw with the Kraken uh, uh, settlement, you know, maybe there's some uh, legal dubiousness around it, but obviously there's solo stakers and people who aren't in the US and whatnot. And so there, there is some some attractiveness there. I don't know. I, I think overall, though, like with each staking, you know, obviously yield goes down as more people join. And, and so like, I do wonder kind of where that that point on the margin is where like it actually is you know attractive to people to, to to stake versus not yeah the reality is like right now your opportunity cost is just like your opportunity cost is relatively high right now to stake until shanghai and then your opportunity cost is super low and once the opportunity cost is sufficiently low i think i, I think tarun is right like each staking just looks like the quote-unquote risk-free rate even though it's not it's obviously not actually risk-free because your validator can mess up but like that lowest risk thing you can do is just going to become the de facto thing that people do. And then if you want to take on more risk, you can decide to do something more fancy or do leverage staking or do leverage something or other. But 
you know, the default thing, like all the ether in ETH E is just going to, you know, okay, stake that because, you know, might as well make some more money from it or something. I was going to say, there have also been some lobbying efforts to basically change the tax uh, classification for staking rewards <laughs> because right now they're taxable as income as you receive them, but obviously they're locked and it's very annoying to do that kind of accounting. And so I, I realize we're talking about, you know, uh, crypto taxes on, on yeah, We're talking show, a lot so about crypto taxes right now. I don't know what's, <laughs> what's going on. It's been a quiet week in crypto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week, everything blew up. And this week, we're talking about taxes. But anyway, well, it is almost th- tax day. More, more to be unveiled. It is true. Very topical. Yeah. But the other, the other thing I remember, so back in the day, I remember there was this big argument on the Cosmos forums talking about whether they should make staking in Cosmos, whether they could, it should make it so that the entire Cosmos uh, asset is, um, what's the term when like, rebasing? Like make all of Cosmos assets rebasing except for if you're staked. If you're staked, you don't rebase. That way it's economically equivalent to staking in that like you're getting a, you know, a, a fixed percentage of the network, but you don't have to pay taxes. Yes, exactly, exactly. So that, This is called demurrage. Uh, it's a kind of like old school French thing that like French shipping magnates used to do. I think like the hard part that I find with all of this is that staking doesn't really feel that much like a security itself alone. Like if I'm a solo staker in some sense and I get slashed for like not being online or not pro- or invalid processing of a transaction, well, that is only inured to me. There's not like this common effort of others to take that loss. Now, when you're pooling staked products like staking derivatives or like these pooled vehicles, the pooled vehicles are a lot closer, right? Because I am I am sort of subsidizing like the loss is shared. The, the profit and loss are really shared amongst everyone. But the individual stakers just seem so far removed from orange groves in Florida. And so I just like find it really hard to imagine that. And that's why they're single origin and organic. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> I, need, I need a t-shirt of like buy organic yield. I think that's, uh, that, that's really charming. Um, Okay, well, so, okay, speaking of getting slashed, getting slashed. So there was a very interesting attack that took place this week, a $25 million MEV attack. Now, we don't see these very often. Uh, the last time that we saw, like, an MEV attack was, 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 was quite a while ago. I remember something uh, somewhat distant last year that took place that was, that was uh, directionally similar, where basically what happened was that there was uh, somebody who set up their own validator, and when their validator was, was up to produce the next block, they put these bait transactions into the mempool to try to get these MEV bots that are constantly scanning the mempool, trying to find transactions to front run or to sandwich attack. Uh, they put these bait transactions in. The MEV bots tried to submit Flashbots bundles to front run these transactions. And then the, the person who was running the validator basically like unbundled the blocks and reorganized all the transactions so that the, the MEV bots instead of front-running or sandwiching other, other, uh, their, their own bait transactions, instead were getting front-run themselves and sandwiched themselves by the attacker. And so the attacker was able to yield $25 million in a single block by doing this across a bunch of MEV bots. So there was a, a bunch of rigmarole about how Flashbots could have mediated this by uh, checking for uh, something about checking for signatures on the proposed block or something like that. I didn't quite follow the details. Uh, Tom, Tarun, do either of you guys follow... Exactly how this attack played out? Yeah, I think the one thing to note is that so 
if we take a step back, when Ethereum uh, had the merge, there was this software called MEV Boost that um, Flashbots made that anyone who is validator can run. And what that means is what MEV Boost does mechanically is every block producer who's selected, so like, you know, there's some verifiable randomness, we select the next person who chooses a block, they become an auctioneer. They say, I'm willing to sell the block space that I'm deemed to produce in the next block. And you can bid in my auction. And MEV Boost lets people bid. And these people who are bidders are called block builders. And they send you blocks of transactions. And the idea is that if they found some MEV, they might like you know reorder some transactions or add some sandwich attacks. And then they send it to you, the proposer, because you, you have to produce that block. And there's sort of some interesting rules of how this works. So the way that the people who are bidding send you the bids is they actually send you some form of metadata proving that the transactions they're sending you are valid plus their bid the interesting thing that happens though is it you don't reveal your transactions so the the proposer the person who 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 is selected if you revealed all your transactions they could just copy your transactions right they could just like censor you and elide your transactions so for censorship resistance reasons you don't include your transactions however there was a sort of bug depending on whether you want to call a bug or intended feature where if someone basically sent you a certain set of metadata uh and then you know when the proposer validated it before sending it to the rest of the network if it was invalid um you could still sort of see the transactions that they sent so what that means is that someone wins a block and they don't but they bid without sending you their transactions then subsequently they send you all their transactions but then you send an invalid block to the rest of the network that doesn't get accepted. And then you immediately make a block where you add in all the copies and then send it and try to you'd cause this kind of race to get your block to be first. And the software had this unintended effect that like these invalid, like these invalid blocks still sort of leak their transactions. So there's a little bit of information that the the the, the sort of malicious validator could use. Now, I know this probably sounds scary to a lot of listeners, but this type of stuff, for the record, happens in normal trading all the time. Um, in, in normal high-frequency trading, you see all these kind of weird sequencer issues between multiple venues. Um, so I, I would say that these types of like auction hocus-pocus stuff happens everywhere. Uh, equity auctions are notorious for this. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, too, because I know like obviously part of it is, at least on a, Ethereum, if you're a validator, like, you know you're going to be proposing a block what, like two epochs ahead of time. Um, and that allows you to do, you know, multi-block MEV or, or do something like this. Um, and there's kind of been some research into like randomizing or obfuscating that a little bit more. So this kind of stuff isn't possible. Um, you are, I guess, our, our resident expert. Like, what is the state of the art on, on stuff like this? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I think the uh, proof of stake uh, versus proof of work has this one particular problem. So in proof of stake... In order for the stake distribution to be sampled, like in order to say like, you know, Laura puts in 100 ETH, Tom puts in 10 ETH, Hasid puts in 90 ETH, the fact that like Laura should be sampled the most, that rule requires you to sort of lock your ETH into a contract that can then be sampled at those ratios, right, of 50% to Laura, uh, 45% to Hasid, etc. And you can't just join and leave the network whenever you want you know, in, in particular, because the network, everyone needs to agree for some amount of time that the stake distribution hasn't changed, that we're sampling the same distribution and such that the probabilities are all correct. 
In proof of work, that's not true. No one actually ever has to know how many people are running machines or running hash where there's hash power. Uh, the difficulty adjustment just sort of infrequently adjusts based on how many things you've seen, but it it actually means that people can join and leave whenever they want. And so there's there's this whole line of research of like how do you can you use advanced cryptographic tools to get proof of stake to have that property? Um, and there's sort of some some negative results on this, but the positive results are this paper by um, Dan Bonet and I think Nicola Greco from. 2020 called a uh, single secret leader election. So it's sort of a way of selecting a leader in a fully private manner. And, and on the next block, they, they, they provide some sort of ZK proof like thing, zero knowledge proof that like, hey, they, the, the correct person was selected. And so the state of the art is people know things that can be done. People have implemented them. They are not very good for production because they rely on some cryptography that I think people are not 100% comfortable with is uh, threshold fully, fully homomorphic encryption. Okay. Well, that went totally over my head. Uh, <laughs> so, I know, mine too. That sounds, that Sorry. sounds um, all good. I remember um, back in the day there were, uh, I, th- I thought Ethereum was also relatively unique in that like you have a very far look ahead to know when the next, who the next leader is going to be and other algorithms don't have that property. So I believe it was like Algorand or, Tezos, or I can't remember which one it was that like you can know two in advance. And then one of them was like one in advance or something like that. I, I forget all these details now because it's been so many years since anybody was talking about consensus mechanisms. I remember back in 2017 and 2018, this is like all everybody was talking about was the different properties of consensus mechanisms. And here we are so many years later and nobody cares about any of those <laughs> things anymore. And this is the one place where it matters. I'll, I'll, get, I'll, give, I'll give Ethereum a lot of credit in, in, in one place, which is that a lot of other proof of stake networks have very long epoch times for like how long the stake distribution is kept constant. Um, and it, you're known for like many, many blocks in advance. And I think Ethereum did do a lot of work to try to like reduce that. So it's, 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 it's like realistically like six to 12 blocks that you know in advance v- versus like hundreds or thousands in some other networks. Yeah, fair enough. Well, there was, there was one more hack that ended up getting a resolution this week. Uh, and that was the Euler Finance hack. So we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Euler Finance was hacked for, uh, I think, almost $200 million. Like almost all the assets in the, in the protocol were stolen. So Twitter went on this wild goose chase to try to find the ether that was stolen from the attacker. And some, a small amount of it was already returned. But it turned out that through cooperation with law enforcement, uh, particularly supposedly with help from Han Ventures, uh, they were able to get in touch with law enforcement that was able to track down who the attacker was. And ultimately they got into conversation with the attacker and were able to negotiate a return of all of the funds or the vast majority of the funds. So we don't have a lot of details. Things are pretty vague as to what happened and how it happened, but supposedly a bunch of people were involved, including Samsung and uh, 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 Hudson and a bunch of folks who were, you know, just part of the security apparatus of Ethereum who helped everything run. So, All's well that ends well. Looks like Euler got all the money back uh, and the attacker was tracked down. I think one of the lessons here from Euler Finance is that it's getting harder and harder to get away with big hacks. And we we saw this before last year. I remember there was a number of hacks last year that got fully returned or like returned minus like some small finder's fee, quote unquote, of like a couple million dollars. And so this does seem like, especially in a post-tornado world, 
it's just like we've increased the friction of being able to cash out and the non-KYC exchanges are getting less and less that it's just more and more difficult to, to hide your tracks on chain. What are you guys' thoughts about this, uh, this, this Euler return? I mean, like this was uh, something that came up when I was doing the Dow hacker thing for my book. You know, when I interviewed people um, about who I thought it was and stuff, they were saying stuff to me like, oh my gosh, he could have saved all that money and then he would have been a hero in the Ethereum community. And now because he did the opposite, uh, you know, he'll be shunned. And people were saying things like reputation is everything. And he could have like had it made for life. Like he would have been considered this like amazing solidity, you know, dev. And I mean, maybe some people might think of him that way now, but, you know, I think a lot of people probably don't. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it sort of just shifts the incentives in a way where I hopefully would think that a lot of people who find these exploits would start realizing like, oh, what I can do is I can, you know, make a little whatever, like bounty fee or, or whatever they call that. Um, and then I will be made for however long because I've now set my reputation as being this like amazing person who can find these exploits. Like, like basically they could be like the other, like the next Samsung. Um, but when they do the opposite, then like, yeah, people don't want to deal with them. And, you know, and then they could get in trouble with law enforcement. And like, look at Avi Eisenberg. He, he, like he, not only did he tweet that he had this highly profitable trading strategy, he came on my show, you know, like talking about it. And I, you know, would imagine right now he's maybe having some regrets about those decisions. So, yeah, I'm I'm very curious what methods they're using to get these people's identity. Sometimes it's very obvious they do something stupid, like they are funding these through an exchange account. And it's like, OK, well, obviously that's not going to work. Um, but I believe the Euler hack was actually funded by a previous hacker that was funded via a tornado cash deposit. And so, like, I, I don't know what they're using if they're looking at, like, IP addresses that are submitting like transactions to an RPC node, or if like there's some extra, I don't, I don't know, metadata. Like I'm, I'm actually very curious um, to kind of hear more. And obviously Han used to work at the DOJ. So they probably have some, I don't know, interesting uh, sort of fingerprinting tools as well. Um, I also have people on, so I think Euler was saying on Twitter that like, um, Hey, all the, all the funds have been recovered. And Obviously, the denominations are different because some of them were sold. So there is a bunch of WBTC. You're not getting all the WBTC back. So we'll figure out how to, how to net it out. But there was, I think, like 1,100 ETH that went into Tornado from the hack that does not seem to be accounted for. So maybe they just negotiated like a uh, sort of you know settlement fee or you know like a finder's fee for the uh, uh, for the bounty or for the for the bug. But um, yeah, there's more details kind of to come. Yeah, I would guess also that part of what makes it uh, a little bit weird is that if you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were communicating with the Euler hacker through Etherscan messages, not Etherscan messages, but like on-chain messages. And somebody, what was it, like a previous uh, hacker, it was like North Korea or something was communicating with the attacker. And so supposedly like the attacker had gotten in touch with somebody and there was some, like it sounds like this was a more complicated thing than just they looked at on-chain records, and then they figured out who it was. It has to be that they established communication and were bargaining, and then like somehow, my guess would be like in that process, they found something. Some of the on-chain notes were crazy. Like the one that was like, I fucked up, I'm Jacob. Like, in fact, that they said their name there, or 
purported Wait, name was, this? was kind of also one of the notes from the hacker said, I'm sorry to everyone who was hurt by this. And, and they signed it, Jacob. Yeah. And they, and they said things like, oh, you know, I didn't mean to like take people's life savings and I didn't mean to like hurt these families and blah, blah, blah. And it's a little bit like, okay, when you're going to take that amount of money, how did, how do you not realize like it's going to affect people? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, are you like two years old or like, wow. I don't know. It's just, um, but one thing I wanted to say about the North Korea thing was like, apparently people thought that maybe what had happened was they were trying to obfuscate who they were. And so they like decided like, oh, I'm going to do this weird transaction to make it look like North Korea is involved. So that was kind of one of the hypotheses around that. Whole thing is very odd. And I have to imagine also a lot of these attackers are probably, you know, basically the equivalent of script kiddies who are like living in Russia or something. And they're like 14 years old and they just live on Etherscan and they found some vulnerability. And then once you do the hack, like you can follow all the steps, like, okay, first fund it from Tornado and then make sure you use a VPN and blah, blah, blah. Then you have the money. And now once you have the money, like there's no guide for like how to get the money out. There's no guide for like how to deal with like, wow, everyone on the internet is trying to get in contact with me. What should I say to them? What should I not say to them? How do I avoid getting unmasked? And, you know, I, I have to imagine that that's where a lot of these hackers fall apart is not before the hack, but after the hack. Like after the hack is done, you know, more money, more problems. Like now you have to suddenly deal with the fact that you have $170 million on your hands and like the entire world coming after you. We've never covered this hack on the show. I'm not totally sure why. Maybe we did a little bit, but the James Zong, the the, the Silk Road 50,000 Bitcoin person, because that person was caught after like 10 years or not 10 years, eight years, something something like that. And it was... The interesting thing was like all the that there was a recent DOJ filing like last week or two weeks ago um, in that case about like his like lifestyle and the things he said. And I thought it was really interesting that like that's being used very much against him uh, in this case, or at least like part of the 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 case to claim he has no remorse. And so, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of this, you know, it's like uh, the post exploit actions are actually very important almost a hundred times more important than the getting into the exploit actions it's like you got into the museum and you stole the diamond now you have to get out and not get caught ever for the rest of your life and otherwise you'll be you gotta not show anyone the diamond you gotta like not suddenly increase your life expenditures to the point where like your neighbors start noticing something's off like it's a lot harder actually to get away with crime than to do crime a lot of the time yeah, and this is what I was saying before because like like you're right. Once you have that money that is stolen, you can't actually use it. Like if you're going to use it, you're definitely going to get caught. Like look at the Razzlecon people, you know? I mean, it's like they got tracked down to their like Walmart gift certificates and stuff like that. Like Uber rides. I mean, it's like super specific. So if you do the good thing, then like you'll get a reward and then on top of that you you know, can probably work for whoever you want afterwards. So, um, but you're right. I think it's like little kids who are, who are doing this and they, they haven't thought these things through. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention though, about the James song is that Taylor Monahan did this like amazing thread where she talked about it all. And like, she has her funny, you know, the way Taylor writes her tweet threads it was amazing and hilarious. So you should check it out. And she has like screenshots and images of his time partying on the yachts with like hot women and whatever. So. Yeah, right, right, right. This was all used against him in the case. And and I think it's like kind of interesting like that. Maybe karma doesn't exist instantaneously, but it does over long enough time. Horizon. 
Yeah, and it, like another part of the tweet thread, and granted, I didn't read the court thing, so maybe the court thing is even funnier, but um, it goes into how, you know, he was trying to hide $2 billion or, or some some number that was in billions in his home, like physically. And it was like in random places, like in a popcorn tin and whatnot. Like, it's like hilarious. Yeah, the, the James Long thing should be a movie. Like, I actually feel like it's like one of the cases that that like is unsung here unsung like villain i don't know like you, you talk about unsung heroes but these people are like unsung villains <laughs> well let that be a lesson to all young people watching the chopping block crime does not pay if you're going to make money do it organically like tarun says single origin organic on-chain yield that's right that's right that's going to be that's going to be our meme now i think for the chopping block that is our approved way to make money in crypto i'm surprised like no one made that meme before because like it is just kind of true right like eat steak we are. We're meme entrepreneurs. Like we got to do it ourselves <laughs> all right <laughs> there was another t-shirt that we were thinking of making for the chopping block this clearly needs to be the second one i forget what the first one was though it was it was i think it was robert in the gm cup either that or it was tarun uh looking at the Looking at the camera out of the corner of his eyes. Didn't people make the GM cup? Like, like people on the internet seem to have like gone and like you know made 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 the made the same version. We have a shop at Unchained. We should uh, whip those up in there, stick them on there. But I feel like the other one was about um, what I'm not going to say because I, I don't remember off the top of my head. But we'll we'll try to find it for the next show. We definitely we definitely need to get started on some Unchained merch. I will wear I will wear a chop, chopping block merch on every show if we have something. <laughs> Okay. I will not wear chopping block merch. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Tarun, Tarun himself is chopping block merch. Like all chopping block merch is basically different versions of Tarun saying things. Well, wait, Tarun, what if it was like super colorful? What if we could make super colorful shirts? Okay. You're, you're starting to work on it. You're starting to, yeah, he's starting to get <laughs> And I just realized okay. you have different glasses now. You don't have your like asymmetrical glasses. You know, I sometimes I wear them. Yeah. I, I switch them up. Okay, Tarun, give us what is your algorithm for when you decide to wear the yellow asymmetrical glasses versus this one? So, so actually, one of the bet- funniest things I actually went to this conference of like not very crypto native people, but they, the pe- folks there, apparently there were people who listened to Chopping Block, but they only listened via audio and didn't know what I looked like. And they were very <laughs> surprised. And I thought that was very <laughs> funny. So, like, to, to audio listeners, I may look slightly different than what I sound like. Okay, so uh, for the audio that. listener, actually you this just yeah, you just made me realize this. For the audio listeners, Tarun looks fucking crazy. Okay? I just <laughs> I want everyone to understand. Tarun has has very colorful, multicolored hair, constantly wears asymmet like glasses that are not quite symmetrical and are also multicolored. His his outfit is usually very tie-dye. Just so that everyone understands that, because I feel like this whole episode, we made a lot of references to Tarun's outfits that may not I, make sense if you don't picture that. Yeah, yeah he often I, wears I, very colorful uh, printed pants, like like co- pants with prints on them. Which true, is with lots of different textures. And colorful shoes. Um, and also his hair changes color frequently. So it's definitely not been the same color or colors throughout the whole recordings of uh, TCB. But anyway. Do we have a poll at one point where people could vote for Tarun's next hair color? I think we should bring that back. Yeah, we, <laughs> we can. We can. Back. We can. Tarun, okay. I have All to right. admit, you dye your hair so often. I'm a little bit worried about like whether it's breaking and like how healthy it is. <laughs> you know, my my the, the my philosophy on this is my my father lost all his hair and was bald at like 31, and I'm like, you know what? 
I'm older than that, and I I still have my hair, and I'm coloring it. So whatever, you know. <laughs> okay, good philosophy. I like it. While you have it, you got to do something with it, and then you know if it goes, it goes. That's it. Say love you. Say love you. Okay. All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap for today. So uh, when this episode goes out, we're going to do another poll for Tarun's hair color for the next show. <laughs> Tarun, you're in. I'm in. But the one thing is, I'm getting my hair cut on Friday, so. Okay. Maybe the poll needs to be <laughs> Well, the show up. should be out before that, so we'll, we'll be good. Yeah. We'll be good. Awesome. Okay. Amazing. Then, yes, Amazing. can All be right. executed. Okay. Sounds good. That's it for now. All right. Ta-ta, everybody. Bye, everyone. Yeah.